Welcome to Deep North, a podcast about Iceland. Today we're going to share our archival content on the women's rights movement from Iceland Review magazine and about the Women's Day Off, which started off in Iceland in 1975. And then we'll have a little conversation between myself, Jelena Cidic, and Alina Malre about uh, this year's Women's Day Off in Iceland. On October 24, 1975, women across Iceland went on strike to demonstrate the importance of their labor, both professional and domestic. Known as Kvennafri Dagurin, or Women's Day Off, some 90% of Icelandic women participated in the labor action. Shortly after, in 1976, Iceland passed its first legislation on gender pay equality, and though little was fixed overnight, it was a step in the right direction. Since the initial 1975 strike, Women's Day Off has been held several times, with women symbolically leaving work early to demonstrate the still extant pay gap. As of 2022, the unadjusted gender pay gap in Iceland was 9.1%. Given the importance of this day, the editorial staff of Iceland Review was surprised to find no coverage of the original 1975 strike in our archives. It was only in 1985, after another 10-year anniversary strike, that the magazine's editorial team covered the burgeoning women's rights movement. If progressive legislation on gender pay equality is still relatively young in Iceland, trailing the U.S. Equal Pay Act of 1963 by more than a decade, for instance, many mindsets and attitudes have likewise only changed in the surprisingly recent past. Norms can change quickly, and although Iceland is often hailed as a beacon of social progress, this history is in many ways still a young one. And while our coverage, or lack thereof, of Women's Day Off shows that change does sometimes happen overnight, social progress is not something that plays out automatically in history. History is moved when people come together and act, like so many Icelandic women did in 1975. Women look to the future. Words by Solve Jonsdottir. The meeting was the most unforgettable I've ever taken part in. It convinced me that though a huge meeting of men of the same mind might influence the authorities when women achieve such conviction, the foundations of society creak, commented Adelheide Bjarnfeldsdottir, union leader and one of the three speakers on Iceland's famous Women's Day in 1975. On October 24th, Icelandic women staged a one-day stoppage both at home and the workplace, marking the beginning of the United Nations Decade for Women. Women drew attention to the importance of their work with the largest open-air meeting ever held in Iceland, attended by 25,000 people at Leikjotok in central Reykjavik. The clearest single indication of the achievements of the Decade for Women, which has just come to an end, is the election of a woman, Vigdís Finnbogadóttir, to the presidency in 1980. Not simply a symbol of national unity and a splendid representative of her country on her travels abroad. President Victis presents living proof that women's campaign for equal rights involves deeds as well as words. Many of her backers during the run-up to the election were men, and she was elected by voters of both sexes, proof that great strides have been taken towards real equality. The individual is no longer judged by sex, but for his or her own character. Marking the end of the Decade for Women, new surveys on the status of women in Iceland have confirmed various established facts, while also revealing that men and women in Iceland have enjoyed equal educational rights since the passing of legislation in 1911. But in spite of eight decades of nominal equality, 
the roles of men and women still differ greatly, both in education and at work. Over 90% of student teachers and nurses are women, while only a handful of female students can be found at the technical college, agricultural colleges and the marine college. The last decade has, however, seen women make a strong bid for education, and since 1980 over 40% of graduates from the University of Iceland have been women, as against only 20% in 1975 to 1976. The majority are still graduating with a BA degree in the humanities or with a BS in nursing, while men dominate the faculty of engineering and science. According to statistics from 1983, women made up 43.5% of the workforce, while their wages were only 29.3% of total income. Married women, 24.8% of the workforce, earned only 16.7% of the total. Although women in unskilled occupations now suffer little pay discrimination among the university-educated, the gap between men's and women's salaries has, if anything, widened. But this factor reflects women's choice of subject at university level. Women only earn 65% of the national average wage per man year, which has hardly changed since 1980. This indicates that women predominate in the lowest paid categories. In Women, What Next? A book which reviews women's achievements over the past decade, Marge Tome puts forward the interesting theory that low pay is one of the factors which influences Icelandic women to bear more children, two to three, than the average Western European. The wife's wages make such a relatively insignificant contribution to the household that she feels able to stay at home with her children for several years. In many cases, she has no choice as only 8.9% of children aged 2 to 5 are provided with full-time day nursery care, and the majority of places are allotted to priority groups such as single parents and students. About 35% of children aged 2 to 5 can attend play school for half the working day. Childminders are in great demand, as about 80% of Icelandic women go out to work either full or part-time. Although President Viktis Fimbukadottir has set a spectacular precedent, Icelandic women in general have a difficult time reaching positions of leadership. In the Althing parliament, women only hold nine of the 60 seats, and in the 70 years since female suffrage became a reality, only 17 women have been elected to Althing. Two women have held ministerial portfolios, and five have been ministerial undersecretaries. Women have done better in local politics, and in three districts, women hold 40% of council seats. But on the other hand, 50% of local councils include no women at all, mostly in rural areas. In the past decade, the number of women in managerial positions in the civil service has risen by 7%, and women have become increasingly active in the trade union movement. Compared with women in general around the world, Icelandic women have a good many advantages. They live to an average age of 80 years, and generally, the Icelanders and Japanese lead the world in longevity. This indicates the high standard of health care, which is almost unparalleled, especially with regard to maternity and child health. In the 1960s, preventative health care for women was spotlighted by a mass campaign against cervical cancer, the second most common form of the disease in Icelandic women. The campaign has produced tangible results in the form of a dramatic drop in the incidence of cervical cancer and greatly improved chances of cure. 
A similar mass screening service is now being introduced for breast cancer. It was never claimed that women would achieve full equality by the end of the decade for women, but surveys show women gaining ground in every field, especially in the arts. The number of women in the Writers' Association, for instance, has doubled in the past 10 years, and women are clearly not resting on their laurels, even though their decade may be over. So we just heard an article from Iceland Review magazine from 1986, a little bit of a different discussion on women and the women's rights movement than maybe we have today. And you may have noticed that the article ended on um, a statement about the decade of women being over, and that was referring to the UN decade of women between 1975 and 1985, a period that was uh, intended to kind of draw attention to the status of women. So have you have you been to this year's uh, protest? Yeah, uh, we both yeah attended this year's uh, protest, uh, women's day off or women's protest that um, for the first time since 1975 was a full day protest rather than just uh, as it has been in some previous years recently, women uh, walking out of work at some point in the afternoon to kind of protest the wage gap. Um, this was a whole day protest and it was, it was quite a bit different from recent years, I would say. You told me earlier that you have been to the last uh, two Women's Day off, I think. Do you want to? Yeah. Um, so I attended in 2016. That was the year that I moved to Iceland. Uh, and I also attended in 2018, uh, which I think have been the last two Uh, women's protests to mark the 1975 original protest uh, Women's Day Off. So yeah, as far as I remember in 2016, I believe it was in Österbrückler, the parliament square. And so it wasn't nearly as many people as there were this week at the protest. Uh, it's obviously a much smaller area. Um, and I was there with my mother-in-law. She's gone to every one of these protests since 1975. Yeah. So yeah, in 19, she's, she's 74 now. And in 1975, she was pregnant with her first kid of four. She would have four kids <laughs> later on, but, um, yeah, she, she went to that very first protest and, um, yeah, you can tell when she talks about it, that she's very proud of having participated both that first time And every time since, and she always makes a point of, of attending and going. So, yeah. Did you meet her since? Like, could she kind of compare the one in 75 to this year's protest? Yeah, I think she had the feeling in 1975 that there were a lot of people. And, and she told me, you know, that all of Leikertorg, the square right in the center of, of town, was full of women. Um, but the actual number of, of people that participated last Tuesday was much bigger, obviously, a much higher number than in 1975. But, um, I mean, the population's also bigger and, you know, we maybe have social media to spread the word and, and now there's a kind of precedent uh, for these meetings happening. So I think that's maybe, those are some of the reasons that, it, that it's been bigger than in previous years. Of course, the weather was great. I think that is also a factor. We have to admit living in Iceland <laughs> encourages people to go out. Yeah, that was quite a surprise that the weather was so good. And and I also, so this was like my first protest or Women's Day in Iceland. Um, but when you are standing in the crowd, you kind of, I expected, I was thinking about this while I was standing there, that maybe I was guessing 10 to 20,000 people were there. So later when the news got out that it was 70 to 100,000, I was mind blown. 
because yeah. I did not expect that at all. Yeah, there was um, uh, the protest in 2018. I mentioned the one in 2016, but the one in 2018 was in the same location on Arnarholt, the big sort of hill park kind of in the center. Uh, and it was definitely not as big, at least not in my memory. Um, uh, like, for example, this past Tuesday, all of Kvarvisgata, the street right beside it, was just full of people and just uh, like Kjarkata down below. So it definitely felt like a bigger crowd and a, kind of a denser crowd um, from last time. So it was it was quite impressive to see, to just kind of walk over right at the start of the protest and see all the people that were already already gathered there. Um, but yeah, how did you feel being at the protest at your first one? And um, did you? how did you feel in terms of also being a woman of foreign origin? And kind of, did you feel included? Did you enjoy the, the programming? There was music, there were speeches. Um, <clears throat> yes, yeah, so it was already quite um, just interesting to walk there because it was just, I don't know, you already kind of felt like you're part of the community who just all gather there. And then when everything started, it was very nice that they had English subtitles going along with the speeches. And I believe also the the songs that were performed. So I could always follow because my Icelandic is, I understand a lot, but it's not like the perfect level. So I felt very included. There were also signers who were just, um, yes, making the whole event very accessible. Um, so yes, I don't know, like the whole atmosphere was just incredible. like. Of course, I, you know, in the beginning, you're a little bit shy with maybe yelling the kind of... Um, the slogans the that slogan. you're being t- told to, you know, join in and, and yell out. Exactly. Like, yeah. But then after a while, I just felt like part of a big community, part of just kind of, I don't know, this community and sisterhood of women, but also non-binary people who are all there for the same reason. Uh, because, yes, just protesting for equality that has not been... Uh, unfortunately achieved yet um so yes i i really loved that they also addressed a lot of issues for foreign women um and had i believe two or three speakers of foreign origin yeah they had they had a few participants yeah at least two that i can remember off the top of my head and um yeah i'm I'm really glad that you mentioned non-binary people as well because there was a very clear effort made this year just in the whole lead up to the event and in the event itself I mean, all of the speeches and the hosting to include non-binary people who, of course, are also affected by gender inequality and, you know, within the workforce and within society. And I just um, was so happy to hear non-binary people mentioned and included uh, because to me, it just makes perfect sense. And, and yeah, it was just a wonderful development. And I think that's something that we can point to as a very clear change between, you know, 1975 and now. I mean, 1975, we didn't have this vocabulary um, and, you know, couldn't address this group that, of course, you know, existed. But now we we have the vocabulary and we have the tools to kind of include them. And that's so powerful to me and so wonderful. Exactly. <clears throat> no, um, yeah, like how how did you feel? Yeah, I also felt, um, felt really nice um, being able to be there with some of my Icelandic in-laws and, you know, my, my mother-in-law and one of my sisters-in-law and the other one that also came later and uh, their daughters and stuff. So it's nice to see kind of multiple generations going there together. There were a lot of people with their kids as well, um, which to me is, is I think, also a special experience for the kids to experience. And um, 
you know, so, so I think there's a lot of value in everyone coming together and saying, hey, like this, there's still problems here. There's still things that need to be changed. And I think that's something that's important to talk about as well, because especially in foreign media, Iceland is often portrayed as this utopia where, you know, gender equality has been achieved and everything's perfect and we're completely equal. But of course, that's not the case. And one of the things that has um, that the the movement drew attention to this year and for this protest was violence against women. And there's some pretty shocking statistics about um, even violence against young women in schools in Iceland. Um, I think you have the the correct numbers of those. Yes. <clears throat> so in total, um, in Iceland, at least 40% of women have experienced gender-based uh, sexual violence in their lifetime. And also what was very shocking to hear, and I didn't actually know that before the protest, was that every sixth girl in 10th grade of primary school has been raped by a peer. So... <clears throat> Um, yes, I was just, uh, I was speechless when I heard this number and I knew that gender-based sexual violence is a big issue in Iceland, but I did not realize the severity of this problem. Um, so yeah, I have been wondering if it is just more talked about here compared to other countries. Um, but looking at some statistics, it really seems to be a bit higher here sexual violence than for example in my home country in like Germany which is strange to me but of course these are also just um reported rapes for example so you never know what's just going on yeah it's not reported um i mean we saw i think a spike in reports of sexual assault and sexual abuse following the me too movement so we do know just historically that uh, when it becomes easier to talk about these issues than, you know, there are more reports. So it could be the case that in other countries, the, the numbers are just as high or they're similar, but maybe cases aren't being reported as much because people don't feel like they can speak about them. So, um, of course, these just in general, these statistics are very difficult to capture accurately. And so it, it can be a challenge um, to really know what the numbers are and, you know. Exactly. And still, like, a lot is just swept under the rug and... Uh... Yeah, so there is there is still a lot to um, to solve, yeah. to do better, even in Iceland when you wouldn't expect it. Absolutely, even yeah. in Iceland. And uh, I think in some ways, I mean, in other countries, there's been a long conversation about kind of intersectionality in feminism. How does being, you know, a foreigner and a woman or being a woman of color kind of affect your position within society as well? And personally, I, I feel like sometimes those conversations are just beginning in Iceland um, as compared to what place they're at in other countries, because maybe the immigrant population here was historically very small for a long time. And so now that there's more and more people of foreign origin, these discussions are starting to happen. And so um, that's maybe one area in particular where Iceland still has room to grow and improve. Yes, that's true. Um, but that was very ple like pleasant to see at the protest that um, they had a huge emphasis on this topic. And I mean, I personally feel like because I like xenophobia in Iceland is a big issue. And then when it kind of when you're also a woman or a non-binary person, it just, of course, just adds up. Um, but I feel like luckily... I have not made a lot of bad experiences, but I feel like I'm also from like a kind of um, accepted country, like Germany, mm -hmm. 
that or like a lot of Germans here, they don't really have to deal with xenophobia like maybe more Polish people are dealing with. Um, but yeah, I feel like especially when you start working in maybe a lower paying job, um, the, some companies just try to take advantage of you. And then if you're here alone, uh, it doesn't really matter if you're a woman or a man, but you just kind of don't have a security net. They maybe try to rip you off. You're not properly paid. And then they kind of just fall down as way faster for you than, uh, yeah, if you're a native. So. Yeah, I think there's definitely, um, it's very clear how these issues are interrelated, you know, equality and gender equality, but then also um, racial equality and, you know, equality not based on your nationality or where you're from. And we all have very different experiences within Icelandic society. And it shows that there's still definitely room for, for things to change and for things to improve. Um, so yeah, like the protest has been in basically every news outlet internationally in the last uh, two days since the, the strike has happened. Um, and Katrin Jakobsdottir, our prime minister, has said something quite interesting. I mean, she was also striking, which also made headlines ahead of the protest internationally. People were kind of wondering how can a prime minister strike but of course, if she wouldn't have striked, people were also would have been mad. So, <laughs> um, but yeah. So what she what she said in in an interview was that Iceland is planning to achieve gender equality by two thousand and thirty. Um, meanwhile, actually, the rest of the world is still about three hundred years away from that. So yeah, I think it's a very interesting quote um, because I, it just makes me want to ask more questions. You know, <laughs> it's like um, I'd love to see the plan of how we're going to achieve it by twenty thirty. That's that's just yeah. I'm looking at my watch here; it's just seven years away. You know, uh, six years very soon to be. So, um, but I would love to see uh, what the prime minister uh, has in store and is planning. Uh, to to work toward that equality. And I mean, Iceland has made great strides. And we see that, you know, if we look back at 1975 and 1985, and hear, hear this article from Iceland Review from 1985, I mean, many things have changed since then. But we've also seen, I mean, since I was at the protest 2016 and 2018, um, you know, that was already several years ago, and we still haven't achieved that equality that was just as far in the past as, you know, Katrin is now talking about in the future. And uh, one of my interviewees for for the next Dyson Review issue, actually, that I was speaking to yesterday, uh, she referenced this quote as well. We were talking about the protests and she said, okay, interesting, but why haven't we achieved it now? Why, why don't we have it now? You know, if we're able to achieve it by 2030, how come we haven't achieved it by now? And I think that's also a very valid and important question to ask. Um, and you know, we're always, we're always, as we develop as a society, we're sort of, we make new realizations and we see, okay, well, we've improved things for this group, but we kind of forgot about that group, or maybe we didn't include this group in the past. Like now we are including non-binary people in these discussions, which is a great development. Um, but I think, for example, uh, Iceland recently passed uh, legislation that uh, tightens regulations on asylum seekers, which also includes women, for example. And maybe we need to look at kind of legislation as a whole. How is how is legislation affecting women in different groups um, that maybe don't have an Icelandic passport or that live here, but, you know, live within a different kind of circumstance than, than many of the rest of us? And today I was reporting on a 
a new report from the Council of Europe that was talking about how Iceland needs to do more to combat human trafficking, um, especially within the group of asylum seekers. So again, I think there's, you know, there's always things that we can work on. There's always an ongoing journey um, that we're that we're having, that we're going on. Yeah, so hopefully this protest was just what we needed to kind of kickstart the next big step in, in for equality, just like it did in, in 75. Yeah, absolutely. And and hopefully the international coverage kind of spurs similar movements other places. I mean, that would be a, a really wonderful development um, to see that a small country like Iceland could have a larger impact kind of in the world as well. Exactly, because 300 years is way too long. Yes, <laughs> I think we can all agree on that. <laughs> If you enjoy listening to Deep North, you can support us by liking and subscribing wherever you get your podcasts, following us on social media, or subscribing to Iceland Review magazine.